Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Carl Oker, Carlson, CEO at Exilia Pharmaceuticals. Like a celebrated one-club football star like Leo Messi, Del Piero, and Steven Gerrard, Carl Oker has been with Exilia since 1988, starting from finance position and guiding his way through the ranks, running to various divisions and ultimately to the top, and he is now the CEO of Exilia. This man is very well known for his wild parties at DCAT and CPHI. And when I was developing the concept for this podcast, he was right at the top of my list for people that I wanted to interview. Hey, Carl Oka, welcome to the show. Thank you, Raman. And uh, what an introduction. And, and, and it's interesting to be really remembered for the wild parties we we have been throwing for many years, but we actually decided to make it into a bit of a brand and, you know, try to do something different uh, where we could also portray both the company and our values and, yeah, ourselves in a different way. So <laughs> it's good that I you love noticed. it. <laughs> I do, you know, and I'm going to come on to ask you about the the, the DCAP parties and the CPHI parties because I've been fortunate to be a guest there uh, in the past. But just to, just to start off with, it would be really useful for you to just tell listeners a little bit about you and, and I suppose a little bit about your journey into the sector and, and your kind of career trajectory to, to where you are today. I can absolutely do that. So in a way, I, I fell into this company and it wasn't called Axelia Pharmaceuticals way back in 1988. It actually was a, I joined the Norwegian controlling company, Apotheca and Laboratorium, uh, which at the time controlled Alpharma Inc., which was a US listed uh, pharmaceutical company. And I came straight out of school and uh, somebody thought I could do a job in finance and, and I um, I joined them uh, back in 1988, and I guess through the years, somebody must have believed I could do more and uh, had some potential, so they kept throwing me new challenges. Um, so um, yeah, starting in finance and ending up in a very different place. <laughs> and did you, could you have ever envisaged that journey that you were about to go on in those early days? Uh, no, not at all. I actually thought, you know, finance was pretty cool and a good place to a good place to start and actually a good place to be. And then as things developed, of course, I, I, I guess I was never really an accountant. I was better at using the numbers to work with the line and help the line taking better decisions and trying to make a better company, but from a driven from a finance angle. And then slowly also started to be quite interested in business development and more outgoing type activities. And, and I guess that that probably was the time when, uh, as I said, people started to notice that uh, this young man, I was still young at the time, could <laughs> probably do more. I, I'm no longer young. but. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just talk through then kind of how how you ended up kind of I suppose ultimately becoming the CEO. I think it was in two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine time from from my research. So how how did that come about? What was what was that uh, scenario like? So it actually started. So back in ninety nine, we had a change of CEO in Alpharma, and and uh, Ingrid was my boss's name at the time, and she became the CEO of the company. 
and uh, she believed in me. I'd been her CFO for a number of years uh, and, and gave me the chance to run the generics business outside the U.S. I later got thrown also taking on the API business, which now is Excelia. Uh, and I also, I was sent to the U.S. to run a branded pharma business that we had in our pharma in those days. But at the time when our pharma looked to see what they should become for the future, sold the genetics business to activists in 2005 and you know they wanted to become something else i was at the time running the api business and it was a natural thing to put up for sale in order to finance what the company wanted to do and, and at that time i was running that api business it was an api business uh, predominantly when we put it up for sale 10 percent of our sales was drug products and the rest was actually apis we're not your traditional CDMO, CMO, because we always wanted to, and I guess it was part of the legacy, own our own registrations, drug master files, have control over uh, the products that we sold, even though they were sold to uh, other pharma companies. But we, we never took on you know, things uh, in those days as a job for another company. We always wanted to try and control the IP. So I was there at the right time and... With private equity backing, we, we picked this uh, business unit out from our pharma and established uh, what's now Excelia Pharmaceuticals. Incredible. And and you started talking a little bit about the kind of you as an API company. Now, the Excelia today is a slightly different animal to what it what it was back then. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of transformation that you've been through over the last kind of you know, five to ten years or so? Yeah, I sure can. By the way, I'll tell you a funny story. So actually, when we started Excelia, we, um, it was spelled with an A, uh, a prompt, so A-X-E-L-L-I-A. And then we ended up uh, the next uh, year or so in a name dispute with another <clears throat> Scandinavian company. And it ended up uh, taking off the A and just sticking with Excelia. But it was a, <laughs> was a good choice, but a <laughs> funny story. <laughs> yeah, so I mean... The plan we, we sold the private equity guys that uh, joined us in acquiring this business was kind of simple. Hey, you have a market-leading business with a, a recent investment almost completed in a live facility. We should take that API business and forward integrate into drug products, which, of course, is very easy to do on a PowerPoint slide, and it looks like a great plan, and you can explain how it all will work, and um, everybody is happy until you try and do it when you <laughs> <laughs> when you have an api organization they don't necessarily know how to do drug products neither how to manufacture them well or nor how to get them registered and certainly not how to develop them so the journey became a lot longer and harder than i ever thought and, and uh, i think the people with me at the time also were a bit surprised with uh, how much work needed to go into it and how much patience and actually also how much capital you needed to deploy to uh, to pull this off. Yeah, and, and today then, you know, if if I had to ask you just to describe the business as it is today, do you, do you still describe it as an API company in, in kind of nope. the traditional means? And, oh, I suspect it's something very different. Yeah, no, no, it's all through that journey and it really continued also with the new ownership from Nobu Holding in two, uh, 2013. We really went beyond generics and started to look at the specialty generics or whatever term you want to put on them, you know, 505B2 filings, et cetera, et cetera. So we started to go deep in anti-infectives. We uh, 
didn't develop one new API just for the sake of the API. We always did API and drug product. We, um, along the way, also started to discuss the commercial model. Having been a B2B company only with uh, predominantly API sales, we could see a path towards actually drug product sales being the majority of the business. We could also see a path that uh, with the right portfolio coming, you could think about uh, going to market yourself. And that decision we have also taken. So we have not only changed the mix of the, the products we sell, but we have also changed the commercial channel. So we entered the US uh, institutional market in 2018. So yeah, it's a very different what we used to be back in uh, 2008, uh, 732 people, 90% API sales. We are now 1,800 employees. We have 60% um, and growing finished dosage form sales. And we have a fast growing market presence in the US, actually sold $66 million in the first commercial year. It is a very different business, a very different animal com yeah, compared to what we were 10 years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated just, I think you all, you as a leader, but also you guys have, as a business have taken, I'd say a very rare and brave step of going from, you know, the B2B space into the, particularly the B2C kind of, I don't want to say consumer, because obviously it's probably to, to hospitals in, in the medical sector, but you must have learned so much in the last couple of years. I, I, I mean, if you, if you could go back again, would you do anything differently in the last few years in particular? Because I suspect you've made mistakes and you've got things right is there anything that you've really learned in the last couple of years yeah we did a lot of mistakes and i can probably write a book about uh, how not to do certain <laughs> things <laughs> i i think the 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 investments in manufacturing capacity and manufacturing capacity in the right uh, geography we um, took too late we have since then kind of caught it up uh, but in the period leading up to the ownership change in 13, that decision should have been taken prior to that. Uh, but it was a natural reason, you know, private equity, five years in, they don't necessarily want another five-year curve. So, uh, so it's perfectly logical, the choices we took, but uh, that should have been done sooner. The other thing is um, don't try and take on uh, large projects with, um, uh, what should I say, not enough subject matter expertise in, in place. Uh, yes, it costs money. And yes, it can be frustrating trying to build that out prior to your project work, but um, you'll pay the price afterwards if you don't. So planning all these large scale projects and yeah, resourcing them in the right way. Uh, there is no, you need a lot of luck if, uh, for, for, for doing, the alter, doing, the, doing it the alternative way. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah. I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and just, I just want to rewind back slightly where we talked about your uh, your journey to kind of where you are today. What what was it that made you different, or what did you do that that enabled you to rise kind of through that business? Because a lot of our listeners are senior professionals in the pharmaceutical sector, particularly in contract services companies, that will probably be intrigued by by your journey from, you know, finance to CEO and, you know, of a, you know, I think three, $400 million company, if I'm not, not mistaken, it's an incredible story. So what was it that you did or can you, you know, attribute that to a particular skill or a particular attitude? 
I'm sure there was an element of luck like there always is with these things. Just, just really curious to know timing. <laughs> you got to be at the right place at the right time. Now, so uh, as I said, as a financed person, I, I was um, never really good at the traditional finance disciplines, but I was very good at using the information that financial the financials can give you and had the ability to translate that into great topics you could bring to the line managers and, and functional leaders to say, hey, look, are there other ways we could think about this and other things we could do? The, so that, that's one part of um, one part of, uh, part of this. The, the other, I think, is when I started to learn the, the industry, uh, I, I was more interested in where the industry is today and where it's gone ahead and, you know, how you could think about carving out something different over a period of time than necessarily managing um, the, um, the the stuff day to day and the details day to day. So I've always had this hang to, you know, you know, I try to look to the future, but not going crazy. So not like, you know, the, the, the real crazy stuff, but uh, what's a rational, in a way, path you could foresee that uh, the industry will take and how you could uh, choose to play within it. And as I said, then at the right time, I was given a chance to, as a reasonably young guy to run a sizable genetics business, 3,500 people presence in, uh, you know, all over the world. And yeah, somebody believed in me and I pulled it off. One thing I did learn as well, uh, without a great leadership team around you, and it means people who are demonstrably better than you in all the disciplines, you won't come far and you should not be afraid of um, allowing other people both to shine, but also to listen to them and then yes use your judgment and ask questions but at the end of the day appreciate that the team is the team and it's a it will become a strong thing if you allow it to rather rather than killing it off (laughs) it's a really interesting point that i mean it's definitely been one of the themes of of the senior leaders that i've had the fortune to speak to in the last few months of that surrounding yourself with good people and, and not trying to do everything your own and I love what you said there about kind of getting smarter people than yourself around you because you, you need, need that those subject yeah absolutely so you used an interesting word there which said that you were you didn't do things in a crazy way but if I had to describe your decat car your decat parties that's probably the word that I would use to describe them they are I mean anyone listening to this is if they've had the fortune to be at one of your parties will know what I'm talking about and I think my last memory of your your last ECAT party, which was obviously last year and not, not in 2020, was dancing on stage with Craig Boyd, one of your <laughs> senior executives, yeah. and, having, and, ha- and having the time of my life. And uh, where did, you know, I obviously I've run a marketing business and I'm always fascinated by how companies get themselves noticed. And you, you guys have managed to do that through a very unconventional and kind of quirky, untraditional route which is very within your culture which i'd like to go on and talk about but where did it come from so where did this idea of you know doing these crazy parties and uh, you know and actually almost building a reputation around your culture via these parties where did that come from was it just a, a, a an internal idea that you just ran with or did it evolve over time it evolved a bit, but yeah, and it absolutely was an internal idea. I think the, the, the little bit of history, <clears throat> the 
owner of Alpharma, <clears throat> Mr. Sister. He, he was himself a very alternative, both leader and a pharmaceutical uh, executive, albeit very successful. He came from a family of uh, actors and he actually had a pretty decent acting gene himself. Um, he, so I have some of the, the, the way of thinking about how to yeah, build a name and how to think about what you can do when you run a business, it actually came from him. So I learned a lot from him, both around culture, around how to think differently, uh, also um, yeah, around what not to do. He had this famous saying, he said, look, it's hard enough to make money in an industry you, you, you think you know, uh, and it's uh, impossible to do it if you try and do something that's too far from what you think you know, which you actually know. But, um, Mm -hmm. um, so there was the influence that actually came from the the old um, the old structure. We have enough in Excelia. We really have been trying to hang on to a, a lot of uh, entrepreneurial input into the discussions. You know, uh, allowed some of these more strange things to to be discussed. And sometimes you pursue them, and sometimes you don't. But don't hold back. And, and so, some of that thinking actually flows into them. So as a small company, what can you do to be different without being stupid? Well, we came up with this idea of saying, hey, look, DCAT is a fantastic event. There is a chance there to do something that nobody else has done. And let's do it properly when we do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what you've done. I think properly is the, uh, is the word. Um, it's, it's an incredibly polished experience you know from from arriving at your exhibition stand and then being I mean this is the CPHI and just being you know uh, not a DCAP but CPHI being whisked off on a coach and you as the CEO walking up and down the coach handing cans of beer out which I just think is absolutely fabulous. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I want to ask you about the word zesty, because mm. one thing I I see constantly with your business is this word zesty. So what what does that word mean to, to you and what does it mean to the to the kind of within the context of the culture of Exilia? You know, let me just go one step back. So when we, uh, I guess many of, of us running businesses, we have done this exercise of developing values and looking at purpose and, you know, all the things that that, uh, <clears throat> that you think you need to do, which you do. Uh, and, and typically it's the leadership team doing the job and, you know, you come up with uh, 10 or maybe even 15 and below the 10, you have another layer of uh, stuff that nobody remembers and nobody really cares about. When we develop our four, and Zest is absolutely one of them and the one that really stands out, um, we empowered a group of um, what we call transformers, uh, very capable, uh, next level and be level below that uh, leaders who we said, hey guys, we want you to work with this. We were there and participated and discussed, and and they were actually the one coming up with the word zest. Now, for me, it immediately clicked uh, because it it kind of ties back to the history with you know the type of company uh, that I came from, that that we came from, and and it symbolizes you know the the willingness to be slightly quirky, slightly different, not being afraid, and and doing it in a way with a smile. 
alongside Zest, we also have being our best, which is also pretty cool because it talks to yourself. You should be your best and you should help your coworker and your people working for you to be their best. So those two are different values. And then the two others are more traditional. You need some structure and some execution. So of course we have some of that with us as well. But uh, yeah, no, no, so Zest is, um, and it's been used a lot internally. And we also, we spent a lot of time when we rolled out uh, the values. Uh, and again, yeah, the leadership team did some of this, but we actually leaned on this group of transformers to really get this out in the organization. And people, they buy into it. They love it. And of course, it helps that the purpose we work with is save lives, which of course we do since we produce anti-infectives used in the hospital setting. But so it all comes together in a very powerful package. And how did you choose these trans sorry sorry to sorry to yep. pause you there. How did you choose what does this group of transformers look like? And the reason I'm asking is I'm sure there's lots of businesses uh, within the sector that are you know developing brand values or thinking about how to uh, mm. communicate a consistent cultural feeling. It's something I particularly a lot of companies as this scale, I, I see struggle with. And I'm just really curious about the concept of like these transformers. Was it you know, three people, 10 people? Were they from different departments? You know, please be as granular as, as you want, because I'm sure a lot of people would find this fascinating. Yeah, no, no, I, I will. So uh, it probably starts with don't let the leadership team do this. It will be technically, <laughs> technically, technically correct, but not good. <laughs> Uh, so the transformers, they are from uh, pretty much all functions. You had, uh, there, there were 15 of them originally. You had uh, commercial people, manufacturing people, quality, R&D. They came from uh, Denmark, Norway, US, Croatia, um, even India. Um, so we made it completely cross-functional, fu- cross cross-geography, uh, uh, deliberately so. But of course, with enough of Scandinavian influence, since we are, after all, a Scandinavian company, to kind of really make sure we had the history with us and, and, and the legacy with us. Uh, so very capable people. Um, some were senior leaders, some a little bit less uh, senior, uh, but people we had kind of thought about as you know having potential. Um, and actually, to your question, we have since then, we have expanded that group and used them also to work with our leadership promise. Uh, we have also used them to work with challenging tasks, like when we were a bit squeezed for cash for a while here, <clears throat> how do you work with? So we use them in many different ways. There are currently about 50 of them. Wow. So we gave them some help, some um, both from the leadership team, but we also had an external, I won't call it coach, but a facilitator that, that kind of draws some of the uh, the process for them uh, but it has been very very successful and yeah I, I believe in it I really do you'll get a lot more out from 50 people below a leadership team when they engage than you can you know from eight guys trying to give the message out to the organization there's a lot more powerful when you go the other way so I, I love it I think there's a real lesson in there for a lot of businesses that you know particularly in the sector that think that the values you know come from the leadership team and then you know you put a poster on the wall and <laughs> and you're done you go. <laughs> whereas i think you guys are a real example it is it's fascinating because you know what you're saying that it kind of comes from different departments yet your culture resonates at that senior level obviously the party at dcat it's all kind of connected and 
and just one final question on culture. How did how did you manage, or how have you scaled the culture, and particularly as you've developed your US business? I mean, I mm. I see firsthand the cultural differences between being in the US versus say in in Europe. So I'm just curious to know how how how, how have you been able to scale that, and I suppose um, you, know, you know move that across to your your head offices in Chicago, and I know you've got the site in Cleveland as well. So just Really interested in how you've been able to do that. Yeah, no, no, it's, a, it's actually a great question. I, I think we knew from the on the, the onset uh, when we were uh, most of the people in Denmark and a group in Norway and uh, the plant in Budapest and the plant in China uh, and started up in in Zagreb uh, on a pretty large scale before we came to the US. But already then we could see that you had pockets of people with different you know backgrounds and to your point, cultures and their different geographical things with them, we kind of knew that for this to succeed, we needed to build something that could go above and across all of this, um, these type of challenges. And that was the same uh, in the U.S. When we started up in the U.S., we knew that we had to get in there from the beginning and really you know, work with this uh, from day one. Um, and yeah, you are a bit of a messiah. Not not just me or the leadership team, but again, now our transformers are also in the U.S. and and um, and have been for a while. So I mean, you you work with with what you have, but you 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 need to be pretty. You you can't give up uh, because if you let it go, uh, it will go nowhere. So it's a bit of a. Um, you sell the message. We have a great message, so it's not difficult to sell actually, and it it resonates with people. Um, but can I, one more comment. I mean, you, you talked about culture we, and alongside values and, and purpose. We also do a lot of work with SOS uh, Children's Villages, um, where we have been uh, supporting a clinic, medical clinic in, in Kenya, and a maternity wing attached to the clinic, and now also for this, um, not outpatient, but the family programs that are running out in the, in the community. And again, that's another emotional hook where done right, um, people really on board and they can see the link between that, your values and your purpose. And it's not done to make money. It's done to say, guys, you know, we, we, we do something different. And there's a lot of engagement in the organization also around that. So there are many things in a way coming together in one somehow coherent system. <laughs> I love that, and I, and I did. I was going to actually ask you about because I've I've seen quite a lot of the charitable outreach that you guys do, and it is genuinely heartwarming. I've had the fortune of of meeting your team members that I've actually, and from memory, you actually physically send a, a bunch mm-hmm. of your team to to Kenya, and and I've spoken to a few of those people, and they've it's been life changing for some of those people to have that experience of visiting places like this and seeing the impact, and I imagine that just strengthens their bond with the organization it, it really does and they come back from those visits they're full of ideas and you know out of that uh, on whatever site they are they will come up with so here's like three things we could do to help to work with um, so uh, for the time being it's more of a challenge trying to manage not too many that we don't do too many things and try and focus some of the stuff so it creates a lot of, a lot of engagement and you're right it is um also for me, it was really, uh, I was so full of impressions when I came back. It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I want to ask you, I know we've talked a lot about culture, but it's been a very um, exciting time for the business as well in the last uh, few months or so in terms of you've had the FDA approval at your kind of injectable site in Cleveland. And I believe you've also had a, a record year uh, or a very successful year from a commercial perspective. So it would be really good to, if you talk a little bit about that site at Cleveland and its capabilities and what's yep. that, what is that going to enable uh, Exilia to do in the next few years? Yeah, no, that's a, <clears throat> that's a good, good intro. So uh, this is the old uh, Bedford facility or Ben venue facility that was uh, shut down with a consent decree. <clears throat> Beringer stepped out of the whole thing and mothballed uh, the plant. Um, um, it was since then acquired by Hikma, and we acquired a site from Hikma in 2015. Um, and that was one of the learnings I mentioned. You know, this plant is huge; it's a million square feet, uh, multiple compounds and buildings. Uh, so we needed to find a way of uh, starting it up in a rational way, and also in discussions with the FDA, since you still have a consent decree uh, there. Um, so we decided to go live with. Uh, one of the um, one of the buildings, the lie operation. We spend a lot of money on time upgrading the facility to pretty pretty decent standards, to put it mildly, <coughs> uh, future oriented standards, and built the organization alongside this. So, but it took four years, and technically speaking, you're not the plant is not FDA approved. You're kind of passing the GMP inspection, then your product becomes approved. That's a different. <laughs> yeah. No, no, sorry, you're correct. I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I actually know that. I just uh, <laughs> I got it wrong. I'll probably no, get a letter no, no, from. I'm probably saying the I'll, same. So. <laughs> we'll probably both get a letter from the FDA now. <laughs> so, so, but we so actually, sorry, continue. So we we got a lot of help also from the agency along the way. They wanted to see this this uh, plant uh, coming back to life. We even internally, we call the project life, bringing the plant back to life. Um, and it was a massive undertaking. We have spent more than $200 million and four years of our time doing it. We deliberately wanted that plant in the U.S. to support the U.S. markets and also to work with uh, alleviating drug shortages and making sure that our supply chain uh, would be robust. And of course, um, that is also an offer um, that comes out into the market um, and we can see with with the nod from the FDA and now we also have vancomycin approved there is interest a lot of interest in this plant um, so uh, we'll get back to that in a second in addition to the lie operation we are also investing in aseptic bag filling to support our uh, ready to use vancomycin vanco ready is the brand um, out of that facility uh, so it's a um, it has been an active period, very expensive, but um, when asked the question uh, from the board, so will this ever make money? The answer is yes, it absolutely will. It's, uh, it has taken a bit longer than we thought, but this will be a great asset for the future. And how many, how many people are you hiring at that site? Because I, I constantly see on your LinkedIn just, you know, yeah. <laughs> recruitment and uh, looking for, you know, what, what, what kind of staff numbers? Obviously, unemployment is, is pretty pretty substantial in the US at the minute, uh, you know, so what does it look like in terms of uh, employee count when, when everyone's in place? Yeah, well, we'll see where it ends. But uh, <clears throat> so at the beginning of the year, we're around 200 people uh, in Cleveland. We, this year, will add another 100. Um, 
and then we'll continue to expand from there for the aseptic bag manufacturing uh, next year. And um, yeah, I think we'll, we should approach um, 400 people within not too long. And then we need to see what else we can do with the sites. It has lots of potential. There is uh, space, uh, there are systems in place, so it's relatively easy to add additional capabilities. Um, it was built, you know, it's very, the, the infrastructure is uh, sized uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty nicely. <laughs> so you, you, it has a lot of potential at that facility and, and we will um, we'll continue to work with it and yeah, see what, what else we, we should put into it. That sounds very exciting. And I'm, I'm conscious of your time. So I've, I've got a five, five minutes or so of your time left. So I'm going to try and rattle through a few more questions. Um, if you could go back, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? <laughs> Don't be so naive. <laughs> uh, and secondly, stop thinking you know everything because you don't. <laughs> no, but I, think, I, I really think it is about being open and try and learn as much as you can from the people you work with. Take it in with you. Uh, don't, you know, discard... Uh, when the old people are talking, now I can say that. It's like talking to my daughter, you know, she's 23. Um, you know, sometimes you feel like you're lecturing, but uh, you're trying to share from the things you had to learn the hard way yourself. I don't know. It's very, very easy to say, and it's a lot harder to <laughs> receive it because you you will think about it differently when you are in, on the receiving end. But um... Exactly. It's funny because I was chatting to my mum my the other day and I was... She was laughing because she could hear me basically shouting the same things at my my kids that she used to shout at me. I was like, oh my, I'm becoming my mother, which is not something. <laughs> and so tell me, how, how would your best friend describe you in three words? Um, kind, probably at times overly kind. Mm-hmm. Um, can be pushed to a point and then absolutely no more. And you only get two chances. The third one, you're out. <laughs> Three strikes, and that's it, and you're out. And then uh, we've talked a lot about, obviously, the business um, and obviously the exciting things that are ahead. And what, what are the kind of, uh, any other kind of big trends or shifts that you're you're seeing in the sector, the CDMO space in particular right now? And, and actually, just out of curiosity, do you think we'll yeah. see more, companies like yourself you know that from an api background kind of um transform into into specialty pharmaceutical companies do you think that you are potentially a bit of a trendsetter and an innovator in that space or do you think that that is maybe a step too far for for many businesses i think it depends a bit yeah i think there is a um, there are other companies who think about the same and you know try and do the same journey i i you need so um, to move with uh, more advanced products, I think that that is kind of the name of the game for, for many companies if they want to develop products on their own. I, I think the step of changing from your B2B model uh, to go to market yourself is a tougher discussion because you know you'll upset some customers. And, and in a way, unless you have something that's unique enough to start with, uh, it's, it's a tall order. Um, but I think the... We do, we do see uh, similar models coming from, from other, other companies. Um, 
but yeah, it's a long, long journey. So it depends on your starting point, but it takes a long time from taking an API business and converting it into a fully fledged specialty pharma business with a market presence. It's not done overnight unless you acquire um, the companies along the way, but then it's not really, not really your transformation. It's a more bolt on type um, uh, strategy. So yeah, no, no, I, I think you'll see, and you are seeing, and then different companies will come to different conclusions, in particular on the commercial model. But I think the first part you, will, I think you will see. Great. And any any final? I'm just. I know we're almost out of time. So any final comments or requests and to to the audience from yourself or any quotes that you live your life by? I imagine there are a few quotes that you always come back to. So I just thought I'd ask if there are any that you uh, tend to always refer to. Well, uh, since I, so we used to work with a, a, a consultant when private equity was here and, and he always told me, I said, look, you've done a fantastic job. The only mistake you've done, you stick around for too long. So all the things that didn't work, they will also show up. So my answer was <laughs> yes. But at the end of the day, my, my answer is, so never give up. You will, you will prevail if you figure out how to adjust at the right time as well. <laughs> never give up. <laughs> never give up. I love it. And Thank you so much for your time, your honesty. You know, as I said, I was incredibly excited by the prospect of spending some time talking to you, and uh, I really appreciate your yeah your zestiness, and your openness, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And I hope you enjoyed your time on the on the Molecule to Market podcast. I did. Thank you so much. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.